Hello, friends. Do not attempt to adjust your phone or your car speakers. There's nothing wrong with your electronic devices. This is just what a Rick Springfield single sounded like in April of 1983. We're going to get the main show underway shortly. Listen to it. Enjoy it. But do not forget, once you are done, there's way more waiting for you. And I'll leave it up there for everybody for free at my Patreon. The best of the rest of music new releases, April 1983. The oddities, the oddballs, the has-beens, the never-were-gonna-bees. Think of the main show as the kids who showed up for school on time and had extracurriculars and were going to go to college. Think of the best of the rest of April 1983 as the cool kids smoking cigs in the bathroom. I got a baker's dozen of stuff like this waiting for you exclusively at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Hope to see you there once we are done with what we are doing here. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from a guitar in guitar pedal and guitar cable strewn podcast bunker nestled in the heart of Culver City, adjacent California, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully, back to talk you through, to uh, reminisce about the memories of, and to make some new memories of, the best of new music releases, April 1983. I say it every time, I mean it every time. We have got some whoppers to discuss. I went back and forth between uh, leading the show with three different albums, and I decided to pretty much just do lead with all three of them in order. I I, I thought this was going to be the time again. I was like, yeah, it's like a little light, but then maybe I should do like three months split up over two shows, like a month and a half. And then I was like, wait a second. Will you look at the albums that came out in that one single month? Are you telling me there isn't a podcast worth of stuff to talk about there? So we're going to talk about just the stuff that came out in April of 1983. I Thanks again, as always, for joining me here. I always like to look at the music news, the stuff that was going on outside the studios at this time. I see that in uh, on April 11th of 1983, for some reason I thought Dave Mustaine had been fired from Metallica a little bit earlier on, but this is this is exactly when that happened, right? The story goes what they were from the West Coast but got um, a deal with the record label on the East Coast, so they had to get in a van to drive to, you know, sign the deal or make some preliminary recordings or what have you. And I think they had some inklings. You know, you learn a lot about a person when you're on a road trip. If you, when you, when you and a friend leave on a road trip, at the end of it, you're either going to be way better friends than you were when you started, or you are going to not be friends anymore if you even manage to complete the trip. And that's exactly what happened. I think there had been some little signs that the chemistry on a personal level was not perfect, um, perfect amongst Cliff Burton, Lars Ulrich, James Hetfield, and Dave Mustaine. But just being stuck 
stinking together, drinking together in probably not a world-class van with world-class AC for um, for a week or so had confirmed the worst suspicions. They showed up. They said, great, we're here. By the way, that guy is fired. And this is when, you know, they replaced him with uh, Kirk Hammett. They moved forward. And uh, luckily, as we all know, Everybody agreed to let bygones be bygones, thereby avoiding decades of jealousy and acrimony and douche-chill-inducing joint therapy sessions in an ill-conceived documentary many decades later. Thank God for that, because that all would have been awful. Anyway, as for the music that came out in April of 1983, by far the biggest album that came out at this time was David Bowie's Let's dance. It ultimately sold uh, 10 million copies. It was easily the most accessible thing he would ever record. Even David Bowie would later conclude that uh, he had maybe tried a little too hard to pander to a mainstream audience. He had a run of about three albums at the end of, you know, if he spends the late 60s and the early 70s, like, shape-shifting, he's Ziggy Stardust, he's the Thin White Duke, he's Aladdin Sane. By the 90s, he's dabbling in electronica and palling around with Trent Reznor. But in the 80s, there was some definitely very uh, prototypically Bowie things going on, right? He appeared in uh, a stage production of The Elephant Man as the titular character. He was in a stage adaptation of a, uh, a, of a play by German playwright Bertolt Brecht. But the 80s is, you know, he would later refer to them musically as his Phil Collins years, and it's also you know, the one and only time we would see David Bowie, whatever you think of Labyrinth in a Jim Henson movie, but it hit. It hit in a major way, and I'm sure much to the chagrin of his longtime record label. He'd been, I forget what, RCA, maybe, who cares? He'd been with the label for like 15 years, and yeah, he was really, really successful, but, and, and I think we forget about this now, primarily, speaking in a mainstream sense, in the UK. We think of him now, you know, history, we always oversimplify looking back at things, but he had had a grand total in the U.S. of three top 20 singles by my count. In the U.K., he's critically acclaimed and he is um, a perennial pop hit maker. In the States, he hit early and often with like the cool kids, but on a pop, I believe fame. <clears throat> I wouldn't if you if I'd ask you to guess which of his like classic era songs was his sole number one in America. I wouldn't have guessed fame, but it was. And then um, fashion, and I want to say space oddity, may have both been top 10 hits. But that's it for all of the 70s. So he's with the same label for over 10 years. His contract is up. He, he signs a deal with a new label and immediately delivers the massive mainstream success that had um, eluded him in the U.S. until that point. Of course, the dawn of the MTV era had a lot to do with that. Name a more video-friendly artist than David Bowie. But he also just consciously set out to make hit songs. He didn't do that in the most straightforward way imaginable. He took on as a producer Niall Rogers of the disco band Chic, obviously were Disco is very, very, very dead at this point, and that's not the most 
obvious uh, pony to hitch your wagon to if you want to try to make stuff that's going to appeal to, you know, 80s music and radio listeners. He also had uh, had a great stroke of luck in becoming aware of an up-and-coming guitar player named Stevie Ray Vaughan. I believe this is before Stevie Ray Vaughan had even released his debut album. And even at his pinnacle, Stevie Ray Vaughan was far from a household name. But I'm assuming most of you know Stevie Ray Vaughan, one of the great blues uh, guitar players of all time, American, Texan. And he's not, at least to me, a very intuitive fit for the music Bowie was making at the time, which was, and I don't say this in a bad way, but it was very much of the 80s. It was very electronic. There's drum machines. It's kind of sterile sounding, like a lot of 80s stuff was. It's kind of bloodless, but the combination of David Bowie's vocal and image-wise, his reserve and the um, the fluidity of the Stevie Ray Vaughan guitar stuff is really it's it's kind of the secret ingredient. It's the secret sauce in songs like uh, like this one right here. There's four massive hits, as I mentioned. The album Let's Dance sells um, sells 10 million copies. And here's an example of the very special interplay between Nile Rodgers, David Bowie, and Stevie Ray Vaughan. Let's Dance from David Bowie peaked at number four on the U.S. charts, where it remained for well over a year. A little further down the charts, the debut album from R.E.M. peaked at number 36 eventually. A uh, a reviewer by the name of Steve Pond said that with the album Murmur, uh, R.E.M. established themselves as clearly the most important Athens band. So out of all the bands in Athens, Georgia, uh, uh, REM had managed to elbow and scrape their way to the top of that particular heap. The label who signed them, IRS, was hoping for a little bit more than the most successful band out of um, Athens, Georgia. And obviously, ultimately, that is what they got, but not with this album. The um, the So R.E.M. had, I think, released a lead single, which we may have talked about here. I think we did, which is good and sounded like R.E.M. from the jump and was well-received. And then they they really built their way up to... Uh, to, to to trying to tackle an album next they released an ep which you know featured one or two you know greatest hit rem songs they finally get around to making an album and um it's not without difficulty they start working with one producer nobody likes the sound everybody's angry at each other they end up switching uh midstream and recording with somebody else um ultimately I think this album, if it wasn't ultimately certified platinum for a million sales, it was at least certified gold for 500,000 sales. But um, within like the however long it it takes a a record label to say, you know, this album has peaked and is on its way down, whether that's three months or whatever. 
in in the amount of time it usually takes for a record to be successful or unsuccessful, Murmur sold 200,000 copies, which to their label IRS was um, was kind of a, a disappointment, but obviously they stuck with them and obviously that was the right move. And obviously, ultimately, they did find massive success, but um, the, the highest charting single, not that I think anybody ever thought that REM was destined for easy, quick, uh, mainstream radio success, although they did find it, right? Um, Stand, a couple years later, was sort of a fringe hit, and then obviously they had gigantic mainstream hits, Losing My Religion, Shiny Happy People, Everybody Hurts, for some weird reason, a lot of people seem to like that one, but the single that put them as close to on the map as they had gotten to this point was Radio Free Europe from Murmur, which peaked at number 83 on the charts. If sales of 200,000 for REM's Murmur were a disappointment, Murmur was Let's Dance compared to the debut album that was released in April of 1983 by Violent Femmes. No singles charted from this album. I don't believe the album appeared on the Billboard Top 200, which is to say the band Taintstick outperformed the Violent Femmes um, uh, chart-wise with our debut albums. I tried to figure out exactly how many copies they sold first week of the, Vi- the first Violent Femmes album. I couldn't find an actual figure. I think it was like four This album had very, very low expectations, and I don't think it met them. And I'm honestly not sure how the the, the ascent began or was sustained. I just assume it's through uh, the Femmes touring. They've always one of the strengths has always been as a live band. You may know the story. I know I've told it here before. I believe it's true. So they're from. Milwaukee and the Pretenders are in town playing a show and the Femmes, one of the great things about being uh, an acoustic busker style punk band is you don't need electricity. So while people are waiting in line, I think it was in the days of general admission where you just uh, sat outside all day so that when they opened the gates, you could get as close to the stage as possible. In those days, nobody saw the potentially fatal implications of running a, a rock show that way. But anyway, there's just a bunch of cat. You have a captive audience in front of a local music venue all day, and the Femmes are out there and they're playing their their songs, and uh, and and people are responding to it. And I think somebody went inside to the band and said, you know, there's these guys um, to to the Pretenders, and said, you know, there's these guys out there, and they're actually pretty good. And somebody checks them out, and I, and I think the Pretenders, you know, were touring with an opening act, but let the Femmes do a quick opening opening set to start their show and then you know record labels heard about that and the rest as they say is history but it is a long history so gordon gano i think is how you say his last name i saw the femmes the wife and i saw the femmes play live recently they played this first album in its entirety it's one of these things that's like a de facto 
greatest hits. They have a couple of noteworthy songs outside of this one album, but not that many. It just was like lightning in a bottle. Gordon Gano is, he's 18 years old. He's a high school student in Milwaukee, and he's just in his room writing these these perfect songs that they're so specific about his teenage experience, but they speak to the universal teenage experience. You know, I want, it's tempting to say that these are like, um, like a John Hughes movie, but music, but they're not just limited to the eighties. Like most people, I did not hear the violent femmes until this album was almost 10 years old. I, I, I literally remember the first time I heard it, I was, just started dating a girl. I'm a teenager. Her mom had a minivan, and I, I feel like I did not have control of the stereo in my mom's car. But she, but um, but this girl I was dating was a bad bitch, and she had won that war with her mom, and so she puts that record in. and And I remember feeling uncomfortable being with somebody's mom when the song starts, and you know he's talking about being strung out within the first thirty seconds, and it's amazing because this album really is fun for the whole family, even though you know he's singing about being strung out in the first 30 seconds. And there's a lot of uh, explicit moments throughout the rest of the songs, but it really is. It's just like, it's one of these eternal evergreen albums. And they, you say a lot of things we say, those guys were ahead of their time. Clearly the violent femmes were ahead of their time. Cause I don't know what sort of following they cultivated throughout the 80s i'm assuming they played to slightly bigger and slightly bigger crowds but in the 90s it really happened right they were a Lollapalooza band they released a live album i had another girlfriend later who wore out the i think the i forget what the live album was called the femmes i believe set a record with this album for the longest period of time between when the album was released and when it was certified platinum. So it came out in April of 83. It did not enter the Billboard album chart until 1991 when it peaked at 171 on the charts. Ultimately uh, certified not once, but three times platinum, three million copies sold of the uh, the first Femmes album, which I'm sure I don't need to tell you, features songs like this. Has an acoustic busking trio ever rocked out harder than the Violent Femmes? My guess is probably not. Okay, moving on elsewhere in April of 1983, Meatloaf had had, boy, what a weird and rocky series of ups and downs he had in his career. Let's say, let me let me tell you what I think I know about Meatloaf, in part from having been doing this uh, this show for a while. So Meatloaf came from somewhere. Was he like a biker? Was he a Hell's Angel? Was he his bodyguard for somebody? Somewhere along the way, people figure out he's got the, he looks like a gargoyle, but he's, he's like America's answer to Gerard Depardieu facially, but he's got the voice of an angel and he's in a musical or something. Was like, he, was he in a revival of hair or something like that? And people go, by God, 
it's the weirdest incarnation of of star quality that we have ever seen but this guy is a star and then he has this like unlikely pairing with the songwriter jim steinman who i think is sort of an oddball and an outcast in his own way because i think he's openly gay and Steinman, his you know his his musical affinities are are divided between rock and like Broadway show tune kind of stuff, which obviously informs the recording of the album "Bad Out of Hell." And Steinman writes those little teen rock operas, and the no, no label wants it. And Todd Rundgren. Uh, it, it funds it, and in exchange owns a pieces of it, a piece of it because he he produces it, and they shop it to labels, and finally, like they, they go through fifty labels, and the 49th goes fine, we'll release the piece of shit, and they put it out, and it's this totally unlikely hit, but then Meatloaf can't handle the success of it or maybe the partying too life on the road and he has a bit of a breakdown and so when it's time to do a second album instead jim steinman records all the songs he wrote for meatloaf and jim steinman for all of his many attributes and talents is not a singer is not a front man that flops but then even though he just had some crazy nervous breakdown like four months later meatloaf does put out another album but there's like no songs for that so that doesn't do very well. So now in April of 83, it's time for Meatloaf to do a third album. And Steinman writes the songs and Meatloaf is like, yeah, cool, let's do it. But for reasons that are not clear to me, his label's like, we can't pay for that. What do you think? We're made of gold? Even though like they will be made of gold if they just let Meatloaf record more Jim Steinman songs. It's been proven. People like this shit all over the world. So there's a falling out. I think it gets personal. Meat and Jim end up suing each other. Meatloaf has like a deadline for delivering the record. And he and and he ends up working with other songwriters. He even ends up writing some stuff himself as as he would later admit and as he may well have admitted at the time he for all of his talents steinman's the great songwriter who can't perform meatloaf is the great performer who can't write songs but he has to and he does and the album is a, a another massive disappointment and meatloaf as you know just toils in obscurity he basically gets famous again when the violent femmes get famous for the first time he does bad out of hell too and that's probably around 91 or so but we got a we got a long road to hell or whatever the same is from here in April of 83 to the comeback in the early 90s and where we find him is releasing songs like this
Yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds like sounds like Meatloaf singing. Sounds like a Meatloaf song. It doesn't sound particularly good. So, and here's here's the tragedy of it all. So, like I said, the label wouldn't pay Steinman for the songs that Steinman had written for Meatloaf. So, Loaf goes and does the album. Steinman still got the songs, and there's plenty of other people who are willing to pay for music from a proven hit maker and indeed um air supply remember them uh, if you don't it's fine <laughs> not the most memorable of 80s acts they record one of the songs steinman wrote for meatloaf making love out of nothing it all it becomes one of their biggest hits it goes all the way up to number two on the top 100 singles chart the only thing keeping air supply out of the top spot is bonnie tyler who recorded the other one of the songs that steinman had written for meatloaf There it is, the second of two songs that could have, should have, and most likely would have been great big hits for Meatloaf in April of 1983, and yet were not. You know, I talk a lot on this show about the changing of the guard, and you can hear the 70s ending and the 80s beginning, and obviously there's clear delineation stylistically between the stuff that happens in one decade and the stuff that happens in the next, but it's a messy business. There's stuff that blurs the line quite a bit. The Jim Steinman songs, um, the Meatloaf stuff, is very, very, very 70s, and it still was. Total Eclipse of the Heart is a fairly 70s-sounding song. Producer uh, Giorgio Moroder was totally associated with disco he was kind of regarded as the man behind the big donna summer songs donna summer's the queen of disco and yet he really didn't have to tweak his formula all that much to find a lot of success in the 80s he did a lot of soundtrack stuff um the berlin song from top gun take my breath away is a giorgio Moroder song and he also uh, had a heavy hand in one of the biggest hits of uh, all of 1983 really of the decade i would say which was the theme song to the movie Flashdance by irene cara
Men at Work are largely remembered for two songs, Who Can It Be Now and the unofficial Australian national anthem, Land Down Under. And both those came from the band's first album, which uh, benefited because both the songs were so MTV friendly. And I, I remember loving the videos when I was a kid. I will confess, I did not know more than the two songs by the band until recently when I discovered the singles from their second album, which... Uh, you know the, the the big singles are fun, but I, I I consider both of the singles from the second album Cargo, which came out in April of 1983, to be superior songs. And I know I'm not the only person who feels that way. In particular, my favorite song by the band is one that I, it's really only the last couple of years I I heard this song, but it, it it's a very specific song about a very specific um, sensation that most, if not all of us, who've felt, and I've, I can't remember ever hearing a song about it, it's just that feeling that you get when you wake up in the middle of the night, and everything seemed basically kind of okay during the day, but there you are all alone um, in the, you know, either because you you couldn't fall asleep to begin with, or you, you woke up and now you have a bout of uh, insomnia, and all of the things that seemed okay during the day take on a much darker and uh, more anxious hue in the still of the night. It's just, it's a, it's a great, great song and a great, great lyric that came out here in April of 1983. It nullifies the light from overkill. Everything I just said about Men at Work pretty much applies exactly to A Flock of Seagulls. The song everybody remembers them for was from the first album. It was also very MTV-friendly, obviously different because Men at Work stuff was MTV-friendly because they comically, cheerfully uh, trafficked in harmless stereotypes about Australia with Flock of Seagulls. There's just perhaps the most tragic haircut of all of the 1980s, which is really saying something when you think about it. But like Men at Work, they didn't just have one song or two songs. They had more, in my opinion, more like three or four. And you you may only remember the one song. You know what? You don't. You know more songs by A Flock of Seagulls than you think you do. And the songs, I, I, I didn't take, I was not a fan. I still, still would not describe myself as a fan, but they have come up in my listening um, as I've gone through my days. And if you put the music video aside, which I grant you is no easy task, and you just focus on the music, um, compared to a lot of the synth pop stuff, pop stuff that was going on, it's fairly musical. The guitar playing is pretty fucking tasty at times. And uh, pardon my French, if there's young ears in the car, it's just I get fired up when I talk about a flock of seagulls. It's always been my fatal flaw. And the the tunes are are better and more numerous than than I was aware of. Um, and and like men at work. They put out their second album in April of 1983, and like Men at Work, there's some pretty decent stuff on it that has been largely forgotten, except here on this show.
You may not have been paying any attention to A Flock of Seagulls' second album, but if you've ever listened to The Killers, particularly their debut album, I have a feeling they were. So I mentioned that, in my opinion, I think A Flock of Seagulls distinguished themselves from a lot of their contemporaries and brethren on that synth-pop UK um, crossover new wave scene for being a little bit of a cut above. If you want an example of what the stuff was that was coming out around then that it might be argued is a little bit more disposable, um, Heaven 17 would seem to fit the bill. Except I kind of freaking love this song, too. Way further down, closer to the uh, bottom of the landscape of the UK synth-pop scene in April of 83. We have finally arrived, folks. I have had this month earmarked um, on my calendar for some time to make sure that I did not forget to talk. Once again, I never miss an opportunity to talk about, without a doubt, my personal favorite it's it's definitely my favorite lost and forgotten album from the 80s it it's just about my favorite lost album of all time i can't really think of what the other competitors for that uh mythical crown might be i don't even remember how this came to my attention i think spotify just suggested it and i i remember i listened to this song the first time i heard it i said wow that sounds like if Simple Minds, you know, 80s band Simple Minds, if they did a song and tried to sound like Underworld. And it was sort of a crazy thing to say because I only know one song from Underworld. You remember Underworld, right? They were very successful in the 90s alongside like Chemical Brothers and Prodigy, one of the big uh, UK electronic acts that managed to cross over to the States, most famous for the song Born Slippy, the highlight, in my opinion, and many other people's opinion of the train spotting soundtrack. I listen to this, I hear this song, and I go, man, that sounds like an 80s version of an Underworld song. I look into it, sure enough, it's the guys from Underworld before they were Underworld. They were this deeply un... I mean, I think they may have had a little bit of success in the UK, and subsequently this song, it's just too good to be denied. Sort of like Violent Femmes. It may have taken, you know, eight years for people to recognize the greatness. Sooner or later, this song, like uh, my other example for this is always stuck in the middle with you from the Reservoir Dogs soundtrack. Once everybody heard it because Quentin Tarantino put it on a soundtrack, it just got absorbed into. Now it's just like a classic song from the 70s, even if none of us heard it until the 90s. That day is coming for this song and this band and this album because this song is that good. And trust me, as someone who's listened to it many times, the album is that good top to bottom if you like this sort of stuff at all and if you are still listening to this show and have made it this far into this episode you sound like that kind of guy or that kind of girl to me 
I've talked about it before, but this is when I, I think this is when it came out. This album is so obscure. I've actually had trouble confirming the release date. So apologies if I talked about this on a show two years ago, because that's when it actually really came out. I'm fairly certain April of 1983 is when the guys who would become Underworld um, recorded and released an album. They wanted to. They're one of several acts who've had this great idea. What if our band just doesn't have a name, bro? And the label's like, that's cool, and we support that, but still, what do we print on the record? And they go, I don't know, just call us... And so that's what the label did. They're called and I believe it was even as like, hey, you can pronounce it however you want, bro. We don't care. We're not really into labels. So it's spelled F-R-E-U-R. And the the title of this song is is just as nonsensical. The song is called Doot Doot. It's a nonsense title from a band with a nonsense name, and yet the song means everything to me. just had the same reaction to that that I did the first time I heard it. You're welcome. If you're like, Jesus Christ, this guy has even worse uh, tasted music than I thought he did. And that's saying something that's fine. More for me and my unfortunate children who get to listen to that in my car all the time. All right, moving on. I've got three albums um, that I could sort of describe the same way. This is the part of the show where I play you new stuff from April of 83 that I know I'm supposed to like, but I just can't really get into or wrap my head around. It's three important bands and three important releases, two of the um, of the punk rock variety. The first, I don't think you would, um, would apply to Hootnanny from the replacements. And the thing is, what's different about the replacements and the next two bands I'm going to talk about is that I really like the replacements. I really, really like the stuff they did at the end of their career. If you don't know the name replacements, I mean, they've got some songs. Paul Westerberg probably ultimately had more, um, uh, name brand value for the songs that he did that were MTV uh, hits on the single soundtrack back in the nineties. Paul Westerberg is the singer songwriter of the replacements. These guys were just one of these uh, great hopes that didn't pan out, that almost made it cooler. You never knew what you were going to get with the replacements. One night, they were the worst band ever. The next night, it was the best show you ever saw. It was fast. It was loose. It was sloppy. It was drunk. It was rock and roll, but it was literate. And as I say, when it came together, 
into the the popular stuff, relatively speaking, later in their career. I love it a lot. But before that, there's like these eight albums that lots of people worship that I just can't wrap my head around. There's this whole thing. It's kind of punk rock, but not really happening in the Minneapolis area around here. There's uh, Husker Du. There's somebody else. I'm probably forgetting Soul Asylum is up in there, a pre-famed Soul Asylum. Although somebody recently tipped me off. Those early Soul Asylum records were better than I would have guessed they were, considering that it took the band a very, very long time to find success. Um, in the 90s. But the replacements show up and they're almost purely a punk rock band as they go through their career and they get a little bit more experienced and uh, the music slows down a little bit. They start getting a little bit more bluesy, rockabilly, all sorts of other um, Americana um, influences seep in there. And I guess this is regarded as the album where that transition really makes itself known. I know I'm supposed to love this. I've tried. I'm going to give it another try right now. See what you make of this song, which is the standout track from um, from Replacements and Hootenanny entitled Within Your Reach. City got me drowning. I guess it's up to me. I can't live without your touch. Yeah, I mean, he's got a cool voice. It's got a vibe, but I don't. Am I? Am I? Am I? Am I crazy? I don't know. I don't know. I talked to I have a friend of mine's a little bit older than me. He was into this stuff when it was uh, contemporary. And his take is that, yes, he loves it. And yes, he doesn't understand why I don't love it as much as he does. But uh, he's willing to concede. Maybe it's one of these things where you just maybe he just had to be there. Maybe you just had to be there when Minor Threat came to town. Maybe you had to see them get out of a van and perform in somebody's basement to a concert of five people. Um, uh, to really get the, the primal sonic assault. Cause this is another one of these bands that, you know, minor threat begets Fugazi, a band that sort of like later era replacements, at least I can appreciate the good songs there. This to me, uh, has never, has never meant a whole lot. And I know that this, these are fighting words to at least one person who's going to listen to this, if not many, many more. But I feel like I would be remiss to not point out that in April of 83, Minor Threat, having put out two EPs or seven inches or what's the difference, put out what would be their only uh, LP length release entitled Out of Step featuring this song and many others. Laugh. I've done you, I wanted to work, 
Yeah, man. Yeah, cool. There you go. There's Minor Threat and uh, Bad Brains also were bad. That was the first and only album from Minor Threat. Bad Brains were up to album number two at this point. It's also regarded as a classic among people who listen to and enjoy this sort of thing. And uh, it's a combination of, I guess they'd had some really crappy recordings on the first album. So they re-recorded a bunch of the songs from uh, the first album along with a bunch of other ones. There's like 20 songs on this album. And uh, this right here is one of them. Look, as the old saying goes, there's two kinds of people. There's bad brains people and there's crocus people. And I've always been more of the latter is the way that construction works, right? Crocus are, here's what I, here's how I think about crocus for the uninitiated crocus with a K. Um, I believe they're European, which that applies to a lot of the early metal stuff, right? I guess like the Metallicas of the world are being heavily influenced by bands from England and from Scandinavia. Crocus might be German, but don't quote me on that. It's not like I do a podcast about this stuff. So Crocus are, and I talk about this a lot in the, in the early eighties, we're still in the era of the bands who like the, that they have metal in their name and metal is the album title and metals in the name of the song. That's not exactly the case with crocus but metal that's about metal for the sake of the glory of metal we're at sort of the pinnacle of that of those heady days and i think closer to the end of them than the beginning but crocus on this album that they release in april of 83 entitled headhunter reach their pinnacle this would be their most successful song if crocus is still out there playing somewhere this is the song they're closing with this is for better or worse the song from crocus and it is called screaming in the night Ladies and gentlemen, the immortal Crocus. And finally, we have come to the end of this show. But I will remind you that, boy, oh boy, have I got a uh, a rogues gallery waiting for you at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. The best of the rest of April 83. We're talking about the some uh, relative has-beens like Santana, although obviously his success was going to come back around. Rick Springfield and Tommy Two-Tone. Um, a pre-superstardom Robert, Robert Palmer, who I've actually come to realize was doing some pretty interesting stuff before he you know found his MTV groove and had all the 
uh, emotionless model chick standing behind him in the music videos, uh, B-52s, yet more metal for the sake of metal, metal. It's a party, and it's uh, it's free, and I, I leave it open to everybody to check out the best of the rest of April. 83 at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Hope to see you there. But first, a guy by the name of Michael Bolotin at this point in April of 83, has released two albums to little success. I think what's keeping him going is that he's probably already a fairly successful songwriter. He would continue to find success in that arena, and later on, he would become a massive music superstar in his own right. But April of 83 is not that day. It is, however, the um, the first time he recorded music under the slightly adapted stage name of, yes, you guessed it, Michael Bolton. We find him here um, before he goes pure schmaltz adult contemporary. It's a sort of distinctly early 80s schmaltz cheese metal. And uh, yeah, and this is it. With trademark Maine already intact, black leather jacket, no shirt, hairy chest, staring you down seductively like a guy who means it on the cover of the album, the self-titled Michael Bolton. Here it is, the song I will leave you with. Thanks, as always, for listening. Fool's Game. <laughs> 